0: at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our guests entertain and share cutting edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger.
1: Hello, listeners. Today is November twelfth, two 2014. I really hope that everyone is listening, because our program today, it is just going to be fantastic. We have with us Tom Bunn. He is going to talk to us about the breakthrough of the fear of flying. He's also the author of the book called The Breakthrough Treatment for Fear of Flying. And the book, of course, is called SOAR. He basically is a graduate in psychology from Wake Forest University. And he's also a practicing therapist. He got involved in um his first fear of flying program with pan am and after that he founded SOAR which is a means of developing an effective method for dealing with anxious flyers. So I would like to bring him onto our show now. Hello Tom. Thank you for joining us. Yeah today. hi Denise.
2: Thank you for having me. I Really appreciate it. You were mentioning how things got started. There was a captain at Pan Am, his name was Truman Cummings, who uh, started a course in 1975 at Pan Am, and it was based on giving people exposure to a parked airplane, teaching them how flying works, giving them some relaxation exercises, and then taking a a couple of flights. And it worked for some people. Uh, I think it worked best for people who had just never flown and didn't feel like they could make that jump on their own to get on the plane, but if they could go with a group and with a pilot to reassure them, they could. And once they flew with SLIM, we called it SLIM Cummings, many of them were able to fly okay, but there were there were people who had, had trouble. Those were the people who were subject to panic, sometimes on the ground, because on a flight, they were even more subject to panic. And it was... I I worked on the course as a volunteer, and on the graduation flights that we did, we had the clients who were subject to panic, in a state of panic, even though they were doing the relaxation exercises we taught them. So I suggested to Slim that we should add cognitive behavioral therapy techniques to the mix, and since it never happened, I finally in 1982 set up SOAR, added them, expecting that that was... Going to be the solution. It helped a few of the people who had high anxiety, but basically, cognitive um, is a top-down uh, form of therapy. The idea is it's what you think that's causing the problem. As it turns out, the problem uh, when people panic on an airplane, it's from the bottom up. Stress hormones are being released unconsciously, not because of thoughts, but because the plane drops or or the plane pushes them forward on takeoff, or there's there's mo- noises and motions that they're just not familiar with, this part of the brain called the amygdala does that. Anytime it notices something non-routine, and when it notices something non-routine again and again and again, as it does on takeoff, and when the plane drops again and again and again in turbulence, the person is bombarded with stress hormones and panics. panicked. That's what we had to find a way to deal with, Denise.
1: Ah. Now, how many years did it take for you to come up with your program?
2: Well, it it took about 10 years to find something that would work automatically.
1: Um, Long time.
2: Yeah, and I I stumbled on it, really. And I think that's one of the interesting things when something innovative happens. Oftentimes it's something that's stumbled on. Hopefully you recognize what you've stumbled on. What I was starting to work with was something that a therapist from Washington, D.C. came up with called Thought Stopping. Uh, this was to wear a rubber band on the wrist, and every time you thought a negative thought, see, still thinking about top-down, every time you had a negative thought, to snap the rubber band and uh, cause some pain. By doing that, the idea was that it could inhibit the, the thinking of the <laughs> negative thoughts. Um I thought it was a bit crude, so I figured, what about thought redirection? What about having a person habitually uh, train their mind to go from a troublesome flying thought to some moment that they had that was important to them, like uh, winning a basketball game? Or uh, I, I had a marathon runner I was working with, so for her... I said, "Okay, look. I want you to stand, and every time I give you this hand signal, I want you to go step, 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 as if you're back running the marathon." So I would say, "Okay, the plane's taking off. Give her the hand signal, and she would go step, step, step." Okay, the plane's cruising along those turbulence. I give her the hand signal, step by step. But she went into the marathon again. So that worked. She did good. And then I had a woman who who had a different situation that she was going to link to, and I it, we did something similar. Didn't help her. Uh, Then something happened that I was not expecting at all. A woman I was working with said, I'm going to link it to nursing my child. My thought, although I didn't say it, was, you're going to get on the airplane and think I'm never going to see my child again. She called back a couple of weeks later after she had linked together the various moments of flight to nursing her child, and she said she had an absolutely anxiety-free flight. I I was amazed. In the next couple of years, in, a, in the next couple of years, Denise, there were that happened a few more times. Women said, "I'm going to link it to nursing my child." Every time they had good flights, and meanwhile, the people I was doing what I thought was good, linking it to some big deal experience other than an infant, working with an infant, um, they were having. Maybe 50-50. Some were doing okay. Some weren't. But every time a woman linked to nursing a child, it worked. So what's going on? Right. As it turns out, when, when a mother nurses a child, she produces oxytocin. Oxytocin goes to the amygdala, which is the key part of the fear system. It shuts the amygdala down. It makes it Possible for the amygdala to produce the stress hormones that cause you to feel the fight or flight response. So nature has set this up that taking care of the infant is more important than anything else you can do. You, you shouldn't get anxious, oh my god, somebody's going to come over and say I'm a say housekeeper, I've got to jump up and stop nursing the baby and clean the house. That doesn't happen. When nursing the child, the oxytocin sets aside anxieties. Sometimes mothers call, talk about feeling mellow. Mm-hmm. And so now we had a new way to control panic. We could ask a person, who, at least if they'd had this experience, we could ask them to uh, just imagine being on an airplane, this, let's say the door closing, and then very quickly take yourself back to that moment nursing the child. And then, okay, the plane's taking off. Take yourself back in memory to the nurse and the child. You know, if you go to a hospital, they're going to do a procedure. They hook up an IV. The IV is connected to uh, a bag with uh, saline solution in it. They probably put a little volume in it to pump using a timer device. Every 30 seconds or a minute, it pumps a little bit of the saline with the volume into the vein. And it keeps you relaxed. Now, what we're doing here is we're trying to use the timer, that is the door closing, the engine starting, the plane taxiing out, and so on. That's our timer. Those are the things we're going to use to trigger the release of oxytocin. And oxytocin has a half-life of three minutes, so if we can keep producing oxytocin every three or four or five minutes, the person can fly
1: hmm. anxiety-free because it yeah, make That's really shutdown. interesting. Why do some people go through these panic attacks and others don't?
2: Well, panic is caused when a person has too much stress hormones, and they don't automatically regulate them. Now, in the first 14 months of life, actually the last trimester, the first 14 months of life, that's the most rapid period of, of brain growth is huge amounts of brain cells being produced during that period. And they have to be organized. Well, they get organized somewhat due to genetics, but more than that, they get organized by what the child is experiencing at that point. So let's imagine you have a little kid who's six months old, and they get a shot of stress hormones from the amygdala. Something happens. And they get revved up. They don't know what this is. Now, if if a caregiver, let's say mom, is right there, notices the child is getting agitated, aroused, and and says, Honey, oh, what's going on? Oh, you're really upset. Oh, okay, you're going to be okay. This This may be bothering you, but you're going to be okay in just a minute. So the mother does a couple of things. First, she tunes into the child. That alone lets the child know that they're not alone in the experience. And then she lets the child know that she knows what's going on, that it's okay. So she kind of gives them light at the end of the tunnel. Now let's figure that this may happen hundreds and hundreds of times in the child in the in the infancy of a fortunate child, and so this child has what mom does routinely just etched in stone in 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 the in their psyche, so that whenever they as an adult years later feel aroused that memory is going to happen unconsciously that memory has set up a program in the child's brain, now the adult's brain, to automatically regulate and downplay the effect of the stress hormones. So there are people who develop completely automatic, completely unconscious regulation of stress hormones. Now, not everybody's so fortunate. A lot of us didn't have a mom who was... That attentive or that able to tune into us, it wasn't part of her personality or uh skill set, and so to some degree, we were forced to feel arousal totally in isolation. We didn't know as little kids what what it meant and so now, if you fast forward twenty years later, when arousal happens, the f- person feels that they are being attacked. By this feeling coming from outside. There's the, that's what your panic attack is. Now, you don't always get panic attacks though, just because you get some stress hormones. People who don't get the automatic regulation can regulate consciously and deliberately to some degree. So let's say that uh, it's your well, first of all, let me point out that the amygdala Memorizes your daily routine and if and if your daily routine is routine if if what's happening now is what's happening happened yesterday and the day before the amygdala pretty much ignores it it's if something happens, it's different, then it zaps you, so you take a look and you say, all right what what's going on and oftentimes you can say, Oh, that's absolutely nothing, forget about it, but if you can't say, Okay, I'm not sure what's going on, or if you say, I can see there's a threat here." You want to be in control so that you can take care of the problem. Now, if you find that you don't have enough control, then you say, okay, I'm getting out of here. So you can see what's important to regulate manually, knowing what's going on, being able to identify it, and prove that it's okay. If not, be in control. If not, escape. And that works on the ground in many cases. It doesn't work in the airplane. When you hear a noise, how are you going to be sure that it's absolutely okay? When you feel the plane drop, how can you be sure that that's not a problem? So then you say, aha, I need to be in control. Well, you're not. That's not going to help you. I need to escape. That's not going to help you either. So there's where the person is stuck. They've got, in their manual control strategy, they've got nothing that's going to work. What they try to do then is to get on the airplane and keep it off their mind, try to keep the flight Mm -hmm. out of mind. And Mm -hmm. that... Will work if you can stay distracted, but probably during turbulence, you're not going to be able to stay distracted. When the mm-hmm. plane drops, it's really, it's really pretty impossible to ignore the stress That's, hormones that are happening. It's profound. Okay. <laughs> now, yeah. I I probably should go back to oxytocin for a minute and and mention that okay. uh, obviously uh, if if women use oxytocin to and remembering breastfeeding to stop fear of flying. What do women do who don't have kids, what do men do? Well mm-hmm. it's it's a bit different. There are other situations that produce oxytocin. I'll give you the whole rundown. When you first lay eyes on a newborn child, for many people that produces oxytocin. That's another good moment to link to the various moments. A flight. By the way, let me just mention that on our website, fearofflying.com, we have a web page that has photographs of things that happen on a routine flight that a person can use to run this exercise. It's at fearofflying.com/photos. fearofflying.com/photos. Okay. Now, what else can can be linked to? Okay, you could say, okay, here I'm looking at a brand new child for the first time. That produces some oxytocin in me, so you just pretend that uh, someone's holding a photograph of an airplane taking off, landing, cruising, door closing, whatever, right by the baby, so that you associate the newborn child, the production of oxytocin, and that image of the airplane situation. So that when you take the flight, unconsciously, you're reminded of the newborn child and produce some oxytocin. Okay. Now, uh, uh, the other times that oxytocin is produced. Males and females, somewhat different. Females get oxytocin during foreplay if the sexual chemistry is really good. Nature apparently is saying that uh, in order to have uh, do what's necessary to make a child, what you have to do is to lose your fear of getting physically close so the amygdala shuts down when the chemistry is right. Some research says men get oxytocin at foreplay, and some say they didn't find it during foreplay. What all of the researchers find is that oxytocin is produced in males at orgasm. So depending on whether I'm working with a man or woman, I would say to a woman, look for a good moment of uh, sexual foreplay, the kind of situation where maybe you're going out with someone, not expecting anything to happen, but later in the night when you're alone and really good connection with the other person, you just realize, oh my goodness, my defense has just melted. It's about to happen. That's the oxytocin causing that. Okay. Now, for men, I would say, think about the moment after just making love lying there with your beloved. Hopefully, she's looking at you the way that you always hope someone would look at you, and she's, <laughs> she's holding a photograph by her face of the plane taking off or landing or cruising, so you can see. Whether you Link it to or, uh, afterglow or to uh, foreplay. It's it's a little silly, but it's what we need to do in order to get the oxytocin we need.
1: Okay. Interesting. There's one
2: there's one other situation, Denise, that I think is 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 is, is kind of amusing. If you own a dog, when you gaze into your dog's eyes, research has shown that that produces oxytocin. Now, why is that? Well, the dog is looking at you. The same way you'd like a lover to look at you. You're the only person in the world. Totally devoted to you. The dogs are good at this. So that kind of gives you a clue of what should be happening in, in, in yeah,
1: they know how to love-making situations. <laughs>
2: right? Yeah, well, you can, I guess that's why dogs are men and women's best friend. We're reliable lovers. <laughs> so that's the like source of lots um, of toast. Okay.
1: Interesting. I've never heard that now, before.
2: Okay, now... That's one system, the system that shuts down the amygdala. There's also a system that we tap into which overrides the effect of stress hormones. Even if stress hormones are produced, you can override the effect of them. And this is what happens to the fortunate child when the mother tunes in. That the mother's tuning in actually has more to do with calming the child than I originally explained. Now, this is more recent research. Uh, than what I was aware of when I developed this exercise. A guy named Stephen Porges, that's P-O-R-G-E-S, Stephen Porges, has discovered that when you're with a person and they are attuned to you and they're not judgmental, not giving you advice, not judging you in any way, they're just with you, you let your guard down. What happens here, and this is not something you do intentionally, it just happens because the signals that they send to you stimulate a nerve that goes to the heart called the vagus nerve. When the vagus is stimulated, the heart rate is slowed, even if there's stress hormones present. Porges calls it the vagal brake. Think of um, being in a car with an automatic transmission. Um, You put one foot on the brake, and you could press on the accelerator, and pump more gas into the engine to rev your engine up. The car's still not going to go anywhere. So when the vagal brake is being applied to hold the heart rate down, it doesn't matter if you're getting stress hormones. You're regulated with the presence of a person who's tuned into you. Now, um, the vagus also goes past the heart it goes to what's called a parasympathetic nervous system, which is the constellation of various systems that calm us down head to toe. Now, last week, there was some remarkable research that came out that now there's brain scan research that proves that this does work. Researchers took photographs of a person being taken care of by another person, and they showed it to some research subjects while they were on brain scan. And temporarily, it shut the amygdala down. So we have some marvelous proof that not only does it work in actual practice, but we've got brain scan research that explains why, and of course, Porges' research is remarkable. So finally, we have a way to completely take care of the fear of flying program. Even though a person doesn't have the early... Experience that gives them the automatic regulation. What we're doing is building it in for them.
1: Huh. Listeners, if you're just tuning in, we're talking with Tom Bunn, Break Through the Fear of Flying. In your book, Tom, you talk about um, certain fears that that people experience. Such as, you know, the plane might crash or or something horrible is going to happen on the plane. How would one approach this thinking outside of what you just told us? Yeah,
2: there, there really are two different worlds here we're dealing with. One is the intellect, which is, is flying safe enough? Am I doing something that's sound to do? And and you do need to know. You need to be an informed consumer. You need to, to take a look at flying and, and, and learn about it and, and decide if it is safe enough for you to do. Now, statistics, of course, tell you it is, but you, you're you going to need more convincing than just statistics. Uh, then what we've talked about so far is, okay, it was kind of assuming that you decided that flying is something you're going to do. How can you control the feelings? Okay. Now, what is helpful is if a person learns that uh airplanes when there has been an accident the national transport safety board sends a team to the site they examine all the pieces of the airplane they may re- rebuild the pieces into, into uh, onto a, a some kind of a armature that lets them put the airplane pretty much back together uh, or they may look for certain components of the plane. Anyway, they're going to find out what happened. Almost every case they'll find out what happened. They're helped by the flight recorder, which shows what was going on with the plane uh, all through the last flight. Then there's also the voice recorder, the, what happens in the cockpit, what might have been said there. And with with the help of of, of those devices plus what they can they can do with detective work uh, with the pieces. Often, almost always, they come up with the cause of the accident. Then they come up with okay, how can we come up with a strategy to keep this accident from happening again? Do we need to change procedure? Do we need to give pilots different training? Or do we need to make an engineering change with the airplane? Or do we need to come up with a safety device that prevents this problem? Now, we've been flying airplanes for over 100 years, so when an accident has happened and that work has been done now to make sure that that particular accident isn't going to happen again, we've pretty much got it covered that most anything that can happen must have happened in 100 years. So as it stands now, when a, when an airplane crashes, uh, if you're talking to another pilot, you kind of look at each other scratching your heads what could have gone wrong because we've got everything covered. Uh, So it's very, very hard to predict what could have happened when there's an accident now because it's pretty much like everything has been fixed. Maybe uh, something happened that we had never imagined could happen before. Maybe the pilot's procedure that was supposed to keep the accident from happening. But when you understand how controlled flying is, then you become comfortable although it's not absolutely safe, it's as safe as anything you can do. I think if you tonight got on the red eye from San Francisco or L.A. and flew to New York, you'd probably be safer on that plane sleeping there than you would in your own home. The airplane is that safe.
1: Or even traveling in a car.
2: driving along. It would be saying, wait a minute, this doesn't look normal to me. This doesn't look routine. I think I'd better zap the driver and make the driver take a look at this, which it does. Produces the stress hormones. Whatever you are thinking about is completely blasted out of the mind. And all you see then, because this is what the stress hormones do, they hijack your awareness, makes you pay attention to this car that's coming at you. All right, now you go through this three-step process. Let, let's make it simple. A, B, C. Assessment, build a plan, commit. You make an assessment of what's going on. Now, if, if you could assess that there's no problem, that would be the end of it. But here, your assessment is there is a problem. So you go to step B, build a plan. What am I going to do about it? What could you do? You could hit the brakes. You could turn the wheel. You could blow the horn. Uh, so when you decide what to do, you go to step C, commitment. It's at the moment that you decide, this is what I'm going to do, and start to do it, that point of commitment. At that point, the prefrontal cortex, that's the highest level of your high-level thinking, the area up behind the forehead, over the eyes. The prefrontal cortex has a direct circuit, going like a hotline that goes to the amygdala. And when it says, okay, so done deal, this is what I'm doing. It sends a signal to the amygdala and says, "Okay, you got my attention. Thanks for doing that. I took care of the I've, I've taken care of what I'm going to do about it. Now, I need you to stop producing the stress hormones because that's distracting. Now I could draw an analogy here when
0: your phone rings,
2: if your phone kept ringing when you picked it up to answer it, it would be hard to have a conversation. So that's what's going on here. You've decided what to do now you need to carry out that plan. So the stress hormones need to stop so that you can not be distracted. Now, since this works so beautifully, when people drive and they have to make a decision, every time they make a decision, it quiets the amygdala. So this is why people feel comfortable when driving. And that's why they feel uncomfortable in an airplane, because they are not going to be able to shut down the stress hormones by making a mm-hmm. decision and committing to it. Well, actually, there there is a way that you could possibly do this, and this is not something everybody can do. But if you can get on the plane and say, okay, I'm getting stress hormones about this, but I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it no matter what. I understand that there's a chance in one in several million that the plane could crash and I'm going to do it anyway. I understand I could have a panic attack maybe. I'm going to do it anyway. So when you decide that you're going to take the flight no matter what then the amygdala is going to quiet down because of that commitment. And maybe it would help if I under if I if I underscore that the quality of your decision and commitment uh, is not what shuts the amygdala down. It's just that you make it. It's interesting that if you come up with a brilliant plan to deal with the situation, that will shut down the amygdala. If you come up with a totally, totally stupid plan about what you're going to do to deal with the situation, that shuts down the amygdala. The amygdala doesn't make a judgment about it. All it wants to know is, is you made a commitment? Okay, I'm, I'm backing off. So if you make a commitment that you're going to fly, period, if you can make that commitment, that will stop the stress hormones and stop your anticipor- anticipatory anxiety. Of course, not everybody can do that because everybody wants to hedge to their bets and say, well, look, I'm willing to take this flight, but I'm not willing to face a crash. I'm willing to take mm-hmm. the flight, but I'm not willing to, f- to face the panic attack. Mm-hmm. So that commitment is not going to do the job.
1: Don't, Don't you also believe that um we have a control issue here because when you're driving your car, you're in control. But and that's what
2: gives you Yeah, board. that's what gives you the option to send the signal to the amygdala that this is what I'm doing with that control. Now, keep in mind mm-hmm. that if you can't decide what to do, you're gonna stay anxious, right? Mm-hmm. But if you can but say, Okay, this is what I'm plane, doing.
1: When you board a plane, you have no control. You've given over everything.
2: Yeah, but if you can give over everything and totally surrender to it, and say, "I yes, I understand. I may die in the next, you know, hour. I'm doing it anyway." That, <laughs> as paradoxical as that sounds, that will do it if you can do it. If you can make that decision, I'm taking. I'm taking this. Oh. Di- I, I, maybe, maybe it would help out, Denise if I explained this a little bit more because I flew. F- in the Air Force, which were really dangerous. Um, yes. Initially, flying in Germany, flying the F-100, one out of three of the F-100s crashed. Mm. Uh, they were not safe airplanes. The first supersonic airplane was the X-1, and the second supersonic airplane was the F-100. There were no intervening airplanes. They did not yet know how to build a safe supersonic airplane. They did it anyway, and we were flying it. So wow. every day, walking out to the ramp where the planes were sitting uh parachute over one shoulder and board and checklist and whatever papers i needed walking out there i had been assigned a certain what they call tail number three digit number that's on the tail of the airplane uh, and it's walking out there i had number 734 maybe and I look at it and I say, Well, there's thirty planes sitting here at seven thirty four, I wonder if it's a bomb with the fuse already lit or whether it's a good airplane. I don't know. The only question is, am I gonna do it or am I not? And and you actually make the commitment knowing that this
1: sure.
2: flight that you're about to do indeed may kill you and you're gonna do it anyway. And that's what controls the anxiety. Okay. That commitment. Yeah. Good point. And I and I think that you know Thomas Wolfe wrote a book called The Right Stuff, and and he didn't really define what it was, but I think it it was that ability to say, okay, here's what I'm facing. This risk is formidable, and it taking this risk may end my life, and I'm going to do it anyway. That's what does shut down the amygdala if you can do it. Now
1: mm.
2: I think. The kind of right stuff that a person needs to fly an airliner is 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 different you're you're only facing the chance, according to some statistics that are recently out in the u s one chance forty million of, of fatality uh mm-hmm. in the last looking at the last ten years um, that's pretty good odds, but you know it's amazing that there are a lot of people still don't like those odds. Mm-hmm. Because in order for their mind to shut down on a top down basis in uh, in order for them to say, "I'm okay with this, mm-hmm. they're not willing to take a chance they want to they want to know that that there is no chance of the plane crashing and I think that that is a difference between people who have the phobia and people who don't is that who don't have a phobia, they can look at the chances of one in a 40 million fatality risk and say, ah, I don't think that's important enough for me to dwell on. Then they drop mm-hmm. it. And by dropping it, they stop the stress hormones. But a person who's, who's phobic can't stop thinking about it unless they know it can't happen.
1: Mm. But you could be phobic about just living life. When we walk out the front sure. door every day, we don't know if we're going to be coming home.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and some people, most of us take that risk, and some people don't. Agoraphobics don't. Mm. They stay home. That's extreme. And, 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 yes, it's extreme, and then they may end up staying just in one room. You know, you mm-hmm. make your world smaller and smaller to try to keep the amygdala from uh, responding, and you have to make your world pretty small sometimes to do that.
1: Mm. But let's there's talk still that about
2: obsession just yeah, sure. talk
1: about how to handle turbulence in the air i I personally have done a a great deal of flying in commercial as well as private planes and um I found that the in the private plane experience going over mountainous areas mm-hmm. your your drops in elevation are a lot more significant than typically in a commercial airline, yeah. So
2: That's true. when this is yeah.
1: happening, I mean, you literally feel like you're just not going to stop dropping. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: When you're flying, for example, I remember taking a flight on a turboprop from Denver into Aspen, and and yeah, the other plane is kind of on a, sometimes in those updrafts and downdrafts, a bit like a roller coaster. Uh, but what you get at cruise altitude, at a jet up at 30,000 foot range, you might get some uh, reaction from the fact that there's fast-moving air going across the Rockies down at 14,000 feet. That can have some effect sometimes up at 35,000 feet, but it's not at all the kind of roller coaster ride that you get when you're right down in the mountains. And I think right. probably what we're talking about is, is what's the average passenger going to be dealing with who's flying over the rock. He's not the True. one who's taking the at the Aspen. Um, so but how you recommend do you deal it? with it? Well, mm-hmm. there's several things to recommend. First of all, if we can go back to, let's see if we can link turbulence up to a moment that produces oxytocin. And can we link up turbulence to a moment with a person who's very attuned and not judgmental? Um So what we do is we, because turbulence, the plane dropping is, just to think about it, causes distress. What we do in the exercise, we call the strengthening exercise, because it strengthens us emotionally, um, is to use a cartoon character. Now, why? Because a cartoon character, because of our experience with them, no matter what situation they get into, they get out of it. Uh, One of my favorites is Roadrunner. Roadrunner, the bird Gets up on top of the mesa, finds a huge boulder, and pushes off the mesa. Wiley e. Coyote's down at the desert. Here comes this boulder screaming down at Wiley e. Coyote, pounds him into the desert, and what does he do? He climbs out of the hole and chases the bird again. So, uh, so we we can't take cartoon characters seriously uh, if we were trained <laughs> by the cartoons not to take them seriously. Now, let's say you got Homer Simpson on an airplane and he is in turbulence, and he feels the plane drop out from under him. So you want to take that cartoon of Homer with the plane dropping out from under him and link it to nursing the baby, to the foreplay, to afterglow, or to using the oxytocin system and to the vagus nerve system, the vagus break the, 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 uh, that Porges came up with, the vagal break, to link it to a person who's attuned to you. I do both because that way you have a double barrel protection one to keep from getting stress hormones and the other one to override any stress hormones that you did get.
1: Do you only have to play that in your mind once?
2: I in theory, you can when you simultaneously present things to the mind, you can retain them, but I would say it might be safer to do it once a day for a few days. To Make sure you've linked it up. Now, now I want to just tell you that you don't want to stop with just Homer feeling the plane drop out from under him. You might also draw a picture over his head and what the cartoonists call a balloon of the wings breaking off or the pilots up in the cockpit fighting for dear life or uh, whatever thoughts you could have about turbulence. Because if a thought could come into your mind, now here we are dealing with top-down when it comes to thoughts, uh, you might think uh, this is going to last for forever. It's never going to stop. Or it could get worse. It could be that the plane can't handle it. So whatever thoughts that you know could come to mind, you need to put them in the exercise so that when they come to mind on the flight, you're protected. Oh,
1: interesting.
2: Now, yes, yes, there is another little thing. Uh, oh, go ahead. There's, there's, there's another little thing we can do with turbulence It's kind of easy and fun. And that is, you can desensitize the amygdala a bit to dropping. If you go with a friend to some stairs, step up one step, turn around. So there the two of you are, both on the same step, one step above the floor. That's about seven inches above the floor. Reach around, put your arm around your friend's waist. Have them put their arm around your waist. Then count one, two, three, jump together to the floor. Now. It's going to take you maybe a tenth of a second. I'm guessing at that, but something like that. And you could say, all right, how could a tenth of a second of weightlessness, of free fall, how could that desensitize the amygdala? Well, the amygdala is designed to react to free fall in somewhere between 18 thousandths and 30 thousandths of a second. So a tenth of a second is an eternity for the amygdala. And the amygdala's going to say, well, normally I react very strongly and zap you with stress hormones every time I feel free fall and dropping. You know, if you're up on a step ladder and started to fall, I would be zapping you with stress hormones so that you'd stop thinking about what you were doing on the step ladder and think about where you're headed falling to the floor. So this, this, the amygdala now is going to say, but wait a minute, this is different. Now I'm feeling this free fall. I'm feeling this zero gravity. I'm feeling... Falling with my arm wrapped around another person and their arm wrapped around me, and I'm also sharing it psychologically with another person that changes the experience so this is something i'd suggest a person do the day before their flight, so the desensitization is is fresh oh, that's, in addition to that that's great. we have a we have a free app. Uh, if you go to fearofflying.com/app, you can download the free app. It has a G-force meter in the iPhone version. We didn't put it in the Android version, but there's another way to get around it. You can you can get a a meter that actually measures the forces in turbulence and it proves the plane is safe. So I'm sorry, it's, I interrupted what you were about to say, but that, but that's
1: pretty much. Oh my no, no, that's fit on um, that's very useful useful information. I wanted, I wanted to ask you, um, why is the onset of fear of flying around the age of 27?
2: I think it has to do with maturity, really. Um, when First of all, let's consider that you might not have gotten, when you were a tiny little kid, as much connection between arousal and response from a caregiver as you'd like. So you've got some built in, but not as much as you'd like. Um, So you've found ways to compensate. You've found that you can get pretty good at controlling things. You can get pretty good at staying out of situations that put you in danger. And then when you're 16 and you go out for the evening and your mom says, be careful, you think she's from some other planet. What could go wrong? But when you get out on your own in your 20s, and you realize there are you know, things are more complicated than i thought things could go wrong i uh, have to be in control so as you begin to find in your later 20s that there are things happening that you can't control something could get you that's when it hits home when you realize that you can't ensure your safety absolutely and so control becomes very important to you. And when you get on the airplane and you don't have it, when you get on the airplane and you can't escape, that's a problem. Oftentimes people, it starts without a bad flight. Sometimes it has it's connected to a bad flight, but sometimes it has nothing to do with a bad flight. You get out to the airport and you just say, I just can't get on the plane. It's mm-hmm. very mystifying. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting.
1: If a passenger has a medical problem, what should they do?
2: Well, uh, you should let the flight attendant know, or hopefully someone with you will get a flight attendant for you. Uh, The flight attendant makes an announcement to see if there's a doctor on board. Uh, When you consider the size of airplanes these days, most likely there will be a doctor. Now, if the doctor then will volunteer to help... The flight attendant checks the doctor's credentials to make sure that the person is legitimate and then goes up to the cockpit and gets uh, a medical kit that's pretty fancy. It's more than first aid kit. It's a, it's a medical kit for the doctor, the kind of thing that years ago the doctor would carry around in a black bag if he was making a home visit. Um, so that's given to the doctor so the doctor has supplies to administer uh-huh. uh, care. Now, if there's if there's not a doctor on board or if the doctor wants more information from a, some other doctor, the pilot can call uh, dispatch, uh, who the dispatch who monitors the flight, wherever it goes, and say, hey, we've got a medical problem, get me a doctor. And within a seconds, literally, uh, you can be talking to a doctor. The pilot can be talking to a doctor or can relay a message from the doctor on board uh, and decide whether uh, – needs to be landed well if if you do need to get the person on the ground to a hospital the dispatcher sees where you're on radar says okay i want you to go to des moines or Mm -hmm. to chicago or to minneapolis Mm -hmm. or whatever it is and here's the heading turn and you just tell air traffic control this is what you're doing you'll be on the ground probably in 20 minutes they'll have an ambulance waiting you may be able to get to hospital uh, faster than you could if you were at home.
1: Oh, interesting. Hmm. What part of the flight do people have the most trouble with?
2: Uh, cruise, actually. It's the safest part of the flight, but that's the problem That's the problem area because you're up high. You don't, you're don't. you far from the ground. You know, if a person's going to panic, uh, has a problem with panic, uh, if they go to a department store, they, as long as they're on the ground floor, they can say, well, if I start to panic, all i got to do is head for the door. I'm out of here. But if they're up on the third or fourth floor, they don't feel as comfortable because they've got to go all the way back down to the first floor to be able to escape. Now, think about that. The high floor is a problem. High altitude is a problem for the plane. The person knows that even if, even if somehow they could get the plane landed, it's going to take 20 or 30 minutes to get back to the ground. So if they panic they know that they're stuck for some period of time with that panic okay, if they if they require an escape to get rid of it.
1: Yeah, I never would have thought it would have been the cruising. Well, we're going to be running out of time. What I'd love you to do is to tell our listeners where they can purchase your book for and give out your website again. Okay.
2: Well, the book, and by the way, I uh, don't know if I mentioned it or not, but uh... amazon editors uh... selected it as one of the best books of 2014 that happened
1: oh, over the weekend
2: and uh... Okay. you can get it at a uh, local bookstore oftentimes you can check local bookstore and see if it's in stock if not go online to one of the online stores either paperback or ebook uh... it's called soar the breakthrough treatment for fear of flying and um also mentioned that we have a website fearofflying.com sort of easy to remember if you want the free app it's fearofflying.com/app if you want to do a counseling session with me it's fearofflying.com/tom if you want um, uh, the uh photographs to use in the exercise fearofflying.com/ uh photos of course we have video courses which uh, go through all of the everything you need in order to deal with this problem.
1: That's just wonderful. Tom Bunn, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day. Really appreciate you you coming on my show.
2: Thank you very much. appreciate it.
1: All right. Well, thanks again. Listeners, please tune in again next week, and um, thank you so much, Tom.
2: Okay. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: Okay, listeners, please tune in again next Wednesday. We'll have another really great show for you. And um, if you know someone that has a fear of flying, I think that Tom Bunn's program is an excellent one for you to look into. Have a wonderful day or evening, whichever one you're listening to our show. Bye-bye.
0: We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have and follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit Got Cancer? Now What? .com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book Got Cancer Now What